Mark chapter 13, and you can place kind of your finger or your marker in that text. If you are a member, or perhaps a regular attender, you know that we begin every sermon by directly reading God's Word. This morning we have a a slight departure from that pattern, and that's because Mark 13 is one of the most difficult passages in all of the scriptures to interpret. We have come to a mountain, my friends, a mountain that over the next three weeks we will be climbing together. In the Christian faith, as we place our faith in Christ, we come into the waters of faith. But there is a shallow end and there are deep things in God's Word. Today, my friends, brothers and sisters, we are wading into the deep end, you and I together. And so we want to prayerfully, humbly ask God for his wisdom, because we believe this is God's word to us. This is God's word given to us so that we might know God, that we might know his will, and that we might walk in his ways. And so, because we teach the Bible expositionally, that means, so if you're just uh, visiting us today, we've been in the Gospel of Mark, or the book of Mark. There are four different accounts of Jesus' life. This is one of those four. We've been systematically going through week after week. And now we come to Mark 13. The beautiful thing about teaching the Bible this way is that we come and humbly learn from God each and every week. The easier things, we we learned just a few weeks ago about the great commandment of loving God and loving people. Now, that's easier to understand, hard to do, but easier to understand. This morning, we're going to wade into Jesus speaking about the end times. So despite the difficulties, we believe that God has important truths for us to learn. And so both me, as, a, as your pastor, as your shepherd, I had to wade in some deeper waters. I can promise you, I can tell you, I have not studied as much for a passage as I have studied for this one. This also means that you as hearers, this is not as easy a, a, a sermon or the next three sermons to sit and listen to. Because we're going into areas where Jesus is teaching on things that I would say... Uh, are the hardest to understand of all Jesus' teachings. The parables and the principles they teach are easier. Coming into the end times, we tread some passages that we need to be very difficult, or, or we need to be very careful not to translate or interpret in ways that God does not intend. So, by God's grace, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we're going to take the, tep- the steps over the next three weeks to see what God is revealing to us and to know how he wants us to trust him and obey him. So, once again, let me turn your eyes to chapter 13. We are going to read the entire chapter. There's no way that you can feel the full weight of this unless I read it to you. I don't know how often in church you read an entire chapter. We're doing it today. It's good for our health. It's good for our souls. But I will tell you, we will not be speaking on all of chapter 13 today. We're going to break this 
specific chapter up into three separate sermons, and so we'll be going over this the next three weeks. So, let us read together Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, office at the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus said to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and they will be, you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness to them. And the gospel must first be preached and proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of creation, that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all of these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And when they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from, their, from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender 
and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near, at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be given to us to know and understand. God, give us the wisdom to understand these words of Jesus. You've given them to us by a way of revelation. We believe that your word is true and stands and lasts forever. But we confess humbly we need your help. Help us to understand Jesus' intention for his disciples, not only then, but for today, as we take these words as we want to apply them, we want to know you through them, and we want to obey them. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Over the next three weeks, as I have said, we'll be taking a look at Mark chapter 13. I've read the whole chapter so that you can feel the weight of Jesus' words. For your understanding, this is the longest passage of Jesus' teaching in all of Mark. There is no, we could say, heavier or more weighty passage than this teaching in the Gospel of Mark. The fact that it is also Jesus' last lengthy teaching to his disciples, we know something that disciples don't yet know, and that that is Jesus is going away. This is Jesus' last week of his life. He's actually uh, here now. We, We have about three days left. And Jesus is going to teach his disciples about a topic, an important theme, uh, an important lesson for them to learn. That is, how are they to move forward once he is gone? And Jesus unpacks some things that they need to understand. So, in a very simple way, let me outline what we just saw and how we'll be looking at the next three weeks. This section, this teaching from Jesus, is really three sections. And in these three sections, I don't know if you saw it, but what Jesus does is he sketches an outline from that present time with his disciples all the way to the end of history. And Jesus is going to tell them about three things that they need to be aware of and looking for And what we'll begin to do as we walk through this series is begin to understand what are the things that were meant for Jesus' disciples? What are the things that are meant for us? And how do we hold on and believe these things but not go too far where Jesus says, nobody knows the hour or the day. 
Nobody is the code cracker. Nobody knows these things. And so we, how do we balance this tension? So in Mark 13, we have very clearly the destruction of the temple. That's verses 1 through 13. We have an event that Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. And that is during the time of the great tribulation. Verses 14 to 23. And then we see the last passages very specifically talk about Jesus' triumphant return in power and glory on the clouds. And that sketches all of history. Jesus begins to speak with his disciples right then and there. This is about 30 or 33 AD. And Jesus takes a long arc and he sketches all the way to the end of time. And he says, and the, at the end of time, the Son of Man will come back on the clouds in power and glory. And in between, Jesus gives us some important things that we need to know. But he doesn't give us all that we might want to know. He doesn't give us all of the details. But Jesus gives us three specific points to be aware of. This is what he's telling his disciples. This is what he is uh, telling us today. So as we look at that outline, there's two important questions that need to guide our series, but also our passage today. The first question is this. Why is this passage so difficult to interpret? There's many reasons that I can give. I can tell you that I, I don't know how many commentaries that I read this week. I think upwards of 10. One of the difficulties is that those who know the scriptures the most don't all agree on how to interpret. So one of the questions I want to ask is, why is this passage so, in, so difficult to interpret? The second thing is, if it's so difficult to interpret, how do we even know the meaning? Can we know the meaning? Well, you're going to have to hold on, because I won't answer those to the very end. We're going to walk through this passage, but those are two important questions that we need to think through, and so we will walk through the text this morning, because we actually have very specific answers to those questions. It's very clear. And what Jesus wants his disciples to know, both past, both present, and future, is how to build their lives on him and the truths that he desires for us to know. Okay, that's end of very, the big picture of our three-week series. I want to move now to specifically focusing on Mark 13, 1 through 13. That is our text for today. The title is Caution, Trouble Lies Ahead. And we're going to take a look at four realities every disciple needs to know when they're following Jesus. That's what we're looking at in Mark 13, 1 to 3. Caution. Trouble lies ahead. When I give you that title, what I want you to think in your mind, have you ever been on a road where you have a caution sign? Uh, there's, when, you, when you have a sign, sometimes, uh, for example, today's a perfect day. Normally, my route to church or our family's route to church would, would come through the middle of the city. Uh, this isn't necessarily a caution light, but many of you may have encountered today, if you're driving, these flashing signs. Today is the Iron Man, which meant many of the roads are closed. Uh, and, and it's diverting you. But if you are a driver and you've had experience over the last few years, then you pr- probably have come across a lot of signs. There's a caution, bridge out ahead. 
uh, which would be an important one to take note of, there's, there's the caution that construction is up ahead. They're closing down a lane. There's, there's messages that we receive. If, if, uh, it is winter. I remember when I lived in the mountains of North Carolina, and one of the things that you had to be very well aware of is that when we had cooler weather and, and it wasn't freezing and there wasn't snow, but the bridges that we drove over always would freeze before the rest of the roads. And so as you were driving in my area of North Carolina, you always had to be aware that there could be dangerous areas ahead. And whenever that would happen, there would be a flashing line, uh, or a light, about a half a mile before the bridge, and would always let us know, especially in cold weather, whether the bridge was frozen. Because what will happen is you're going 50 miles an hour on the road that has uh, no frost, no ice, and then you hit a bridge that is frosted over. And so you need to slow down. But the reason I point those out is that life teaches us that when we, uh, we are on the journey of life, on the road of life, there will be times where we will receive information, caution, there are troubles ahead. What Jesus is doing in this passage, as he, he draws the ark from their time to the end of time, is he's very specifically letting them know, caution, There's troubles ahead. They don't fully know that Jesus is going to be killed in three days. They don't know that they'll be walking out their journey without their rabbi, without their master, without their teacher. They haven't fully processed that. And they don't know the troubles that are going to unfold. And Jesus is going to let them know, caution, there's trouble ahead. But here's what Jesus wants. Stay on the road. Stay on the path. This is the right path. You're immediately going to doubt. You're going to immediately think you're on the wrong road. You're going to immediately think a thousand things went wrong. Obviously, Jesus has left and we're no longer on the right path. Jesus says, stay on the road. So let's look at 13, 1 to 3. In verses 1 to 2, we're going to see the divine judgment on the temple. In verses 3 to 4, we're going to take a look at Jesus, the disciples. They have a question and a key assumption that is incorrect And in verses 5 to 8, 9 to 13, we're going to see that Jesus reveals these four realities, these four uh, things they need to be aware of on the road ahead. So let's begin our passage this morning. As I mentioned earlier, this is not a typical sermon and not a typical Sunday. We had unpacked a lot up front, and we're going to unpack a little more, but I promise you, you will understand what Jesus wants you to know by the end of this sermon. Let's take a look at verses 1 and 2, divine judgment on the temple. The passage that we see, it says that Jesus came out of the temple. If you're just joining us, in the past few weeks, we've been looking at Jesus in the temple. Jesus was, uh, his authority was challenged when he was in the temple. Jesus uh, is being asked, he's peppered with questions from the scribes and from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were asking him questions, hoping that Jesus would answer one of their questions wrong. Jesus gives a a very sharp parable, the parable of the tenants, the wicked tenants, where Jesus points out that the leaders of Israel have very much led the people astray, and Jesus is going to pronounce judgment on them. And this picture that we have, you have to see very clearly, because this is not just words, so that verse 1, and as he came out of the temple, 
isn't kind of a transition to get to the next thing. This picture is very much for us to realize. Jesus, remember uh, Mark 11, when Jesus was walking to the temple, the cursing of the fig tree? And remember when Jesus unpacks that for his disciples? And we saw very clearly the cursing of the fig tree was divine judgment that Jesus was uh, speaking about, was, was, was uh, sharing. This is going to happen. Jesus has, has gone. He's been challenged by the leaders. He has uh, sh- uh, shared the parable of the tenants, which was another parable of judgment. And now he's leaving. You remember the Old Testament when God's glory left the temple? It's really clear that this is symbolic. Jesus has come. He has shared his message. He has uh, pronounced judgment through the parable of the fig tree. And now his presence is leaving. Jesus will never return to the temple again. And so as he's leaving, one of his disciples sees the amazing stones and the wonderful buildings. Let's just press pause there. Because if we could transport ourselves back to Jesus' time, I don't think there's a single one of us that wouldn't be saying the same thing. This temple, often called Herod's temple, since he was the one who uh, was, the, the, in a sense, the, the one who initiated the project. Solomon's temple was, was run through in the time of Babylon. And Herod is the one that begins to build this. And folks, it was a world wonder. It was amazing. These stones that this disciple doesn't tell us which, these stones were massive. I want to just read for you an excerpt from one of the commentaries about the temple complex. And you could see this complex behind me. The temple complex covered 35 acres. The sanctuary stood 150 feet high. That is 50 meters high. And so did the temple walls. The columns that held up the portico were so massive that three men holding arms hand-to-hand could not wrap their arms around one of the columns. That is how large each and every column was. Josephus, the, the uh, historian, tells us that the stones that this disciple was so impressed by were up to 37 feet high. That's 11 meters tall. 12 feet long, that is three and a half meters high. 18 feet deep, each stone weighing more than a million pounds. I don't know what the conversion is for kilos, you have to do that yourself. (laughs) My commentary didn't go there. Other historians besides Josephus said this, Herod's temple looked like a mountain of marble decorated with gold. The temple complex was architecturally stunning and it must have looked like it would stand for thousands of years or more. If you didn't take the time to process this and you didn't understand what this disciple was saying, then what Jesus is saying wouldn't seem as amazing. By the way, the temple wasn't even finished yet. It wouldn't be finished for uh, several uh, decades after Jesus lived. It was still being finished, last elements. But I hope this description helps you feel the wonder of that disciple as he's leaving the temple complex and saying, Jesus, look at those stones. Can you believe how large they are? So knowing that, Jesus 
answer was very surprising because Jesus said, you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. So Jesus informs his disciple, or his disciples, that that entire complex that looked like it would stand the test of generations would be torn down. Now, Jesus didn't explain anything more than this. And when the passage picks up again, when it says in verse 3, and they sat on the Mount of Olives, one thing you need to know, that temple complex was located, it was at the center of Jerusalem. But the, the Mount of Olives, literally, you would have walked across, you would have walked across Kidron Valley, you would have come up, and where Jesus is staying is in Bethany. And it's on what we often call the Mount of Olives. It was another kind of uh, mountaintop, and it looked down, and it had the best view of Jerusalem. And so apparently after Jesus explains that no stone will be left on one another, he and his disciples have a long walk back to where they're staying. Can you imagine what the disciples may have been thinking about or talking about during that walk back to where they're staying that night? Well, we know absolutely what they must have been talking about is what is Jesus saying? What, what craziness is coming out of his mouth? Because we just left the temple complex, that thing looks like a fortress. It has the biggest stones I've ever seen, over a million pounds. By the way, I don't even know, this would be an interesting little thing for you to research. How did they move rocks that big that were a million pounds into, lo- into the place? That would be a fascinating search in and of itself. But they have this time to think and process, and by the time they arrive at Bethany, maybe they're having dinner, maybe they're waiting, and they're sitting out, and they're looking down over the temple complex, and then four disciples come. And by the way, this kind of brings us full circle. Who are the first four Jesus called? We got Peter, we got James, we got John, and Andrew. These are the same four who come and ask this question. Maybe, this, maybe the other disciples were like, hey, you guys were the first, you go ask him. But they come to Jesus, and like any mind would think, after you hear that information, what would be the questions you would be asking? It was the same questions on their mind, and here's what they want to know. It says in verse 4, they approach Jesus and they said, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign, and when all these things will be accomplished. So their first two questions are when and what? When is it going to happen? And what are the signs? What are the things that are going to let us know it's about to happen? That's the first thing that's on their mind. So they trust Jesus at his word that this temple will be torn down stone by stone. But they do have two questions. Jesus, when? Jesus, what? What should we look for? How do we know this is going to take place? Now, that question is the interpretive key to the entire passage. I told you that we, we, we know some things with certainty. I told you that this is a very difficult passage. But just to put in your mind, their question is the interpretive key. They want to know when, they want to know what. And all that Jesus says from verse 5 to 37 is unpacking that when and that what. One thing I want to point out, if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 24. So we have a parallel uh, passage For those of you who are are new, I told you that there are four Gospels, or there are four stories of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And oftentimes we have parallel passages. So Matthew tells this same account. Luke tells this account. Matthew tells us something that's really important, though. I want to 
read it for you. Matthew 24, verse 3. Because it makes clear, not just a question, but an assumption that the disciples are making. Matthew 24, 3 says, And he sat on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately. Tell us when these things will be. And notice there's a slight variance. It says, And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Why do I make a big point of that? Well, one thing that you need to understand is that when the disciples started putting two and two together, that Jesus had just said that the temple is going to be destroyed, immediately they assumed also that was the end of all time. A Jew couldn't process this. Temples being destroyed, and they automatically assumed that that would also be the end of times. That would be the time, if you, if you know the Gospels, remember along the way, the disciples had asked Jesus at several points, Jesus, when will you start, start the kingdom? When is the kingdom coming? Because they assumed it's in their lifetime. Jesus has come, the Messiah is here, the Messiah is going to save, and so what is the next thing that will happen? Next logical step is that Messiah sets up his kingdom. Isn't that what it means, that the king has come? And so when they hear about the destruction of the temple, their immediate thought is, the end of time is here. We've asked this question before, Jesus, when will you start the kingdom? When will you, you finally and fully reign? And now Jesus tells them, the temple is going to be destroyed. And so you could see by Matthew's question, they say, tell us when the temple will be destroyed. And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? They view these things as happening back to back. And Jesus answers in verses 5 to 8, and we see it 9 to 13, differently they, they expected differently than they expected. This brings us to the four realities. I told you that there is trouble ahead. Caution sign. They've asked when and where. They expect that Jesus will probably give them specifics. And this is where Jesus begins to unpack the present time all the way to the end. And this is where the interpretation, this is where we go into the deep waters. Because we are going to have to Work out for ourselves things that Jesus says are not fully clear. In fact, you can't fully know. And so let's begin, because there are four realities that Jesus gives us here in verses 5 through 13. I won't read this passage again, but notice how in verse 5, it begins with, in the ESV, it says, See that no one leads you astray. Does anybody have a different version? We're looking at first five. First five, it says, Jesus began to say to them, ESV, which I'm preaching and teaching out of, says, see that no one will lead you astray. Anybody else have a different word there? Watch. First thing out of Jesus' mouth, watch. Anybody else have a different version? So the first thing of Jesus, out of Jesus' mouth is, Watch. Watch that no one leads you astray. I'm just going to point you out to the very last word. If you go all the way to verse 40, or 37, you know the very last thing that Jesus says? It says, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Same word. Watch. Folks, we just had a, a little breakthrough in our understanding of this whole passage. First word is watch. Last word is watch. Everything in between, let me tell you, it's all about being ready, being prepared, and watching. 
So this watchword is the most important word in the text. If you want to, and or you're taking notes, this word for watch is also used in verse 9, verse 23, and verse 33. And it helps us understand that while the disciples are asking when and what, they were looking for specifics. They understood that Jesus will tell us specifically the when and the what. Where is Jesus' focus? Jesus' focus is not on giving them the answers they want to hear about when and what. Jesus' focus is very clear. It starts with watch, it ends with watch, and in between, in 9 and 23 and verse 33, we have the same word and the same imperative. This is actually a command. Be ready. Be prepared. Be awake. So what are the four realities on the road ahead that they should be watching for? The first one is that they should expect many false Christs. Verse 6 says, Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. I won't go into all the specifics. You can go and you can read histories on, the, on these things. Josephus, the historian that writes about this time, Josephus was a Jew who wrote history. He worked for the Romans. Josephus records what we call several pretenders that pretend, who said they were the Christ or claimed that I am the one. And we have these written in history. It's in Joseph, uh, Josephus' Antiquities. And you can point to many that claim to be the Christ. Jesus also tells them to expect wars and rumors of wars. And by the way, you can see I'm going to deal with these very quickly because I'm looking at time. I don't want to get too deep into these things. I'm scratching the surface, just unpacking what's, what we need to so that I can get to the end to under, under explain what is absolutely necessary to know. The second thing is we see that Jesus predicts Expect wars and rumors of wars. In fact, he says, don't be alarmed. He says, this must take place, but the end is not yet. He says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And this is where we see the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy that the temple would be destroyed. Jesus uh, was crucified somewhere between or, or around 30 or 33 A.D. We know that specifically. It all depends on just when, when they did the time. When did they think Jesus was born? It was about 70 AD that the Roman general Titus came through and completely obliterated Jerusalem and the temple. So Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. It was going to be about 40 years after Jesus spoke to his disciples. And the reason that came about was that there was a rebellion. In about 66 AD, Jews led a rebellion to free themselves from Rome. And Rome just didn't put down the rebellion. They absolutely annihilated Jerusalem. And they tore down the temple. This massive complex is not up there behind me. You guys saw what it looked like. 35 acres, million pound stones to make sure that the Jews understood never do this again and to make sure that no other city would rise up like the Jews tried to, the Romans put down this rebellion in an an amazing way that completely obliterated the temple. Jesus' amazing prophecy, which seemed like how could that possibly be true, was fulfilled within 40 years of him sharing that with his disciples. 
So this is the wars and rumors of wars that the scriptures speak about. In fact, just for if you are interested in history, in AD 73, the fortress Masada, uh, and also what they thought to be an impenetrable fortress, was absolutely devastated by the Romans. Conquered again. The scriptures, Jesus tells them to expect natural disasters, earthquakes, famine. If you rewind all the way back to the Garden of Eden, one of the things that we often forget is that as a penalty for the curse, it wasn't just the fact that we were separated from God, but nature itself was cursed. Paul tells itself that all of nature is groaning and waiting for the time when God would make all things new. When we look around at the world, it should be uh, not new information that our world is experiencing natural disasters of amazing proportions. In fact, but they're not getting less. We are finding out, as history goes on, these things, uh, not only the frequency, but the amount of damage that our world does through tsunamis, through earthquakes, through famine, is actually increasing. With all of human technology, with all that we have, with all the science, all that we know, we are not winning the war against nature. Nature is increasing in frequency, and in its, its, its potency. The curse from the garden is real. Nature wars against us. And Jesus says, expect that you will see these things. False Christs, rumors of war, expect natural disasters. Now you can imagine when they are seeing all of these things. And Jesus says, don't be led astray. Notice what Jesus says. He says, the end is not yet. What did his disciples think? If the destruction of the temple is coming, and we're seeing wars, and we're seeing false Christs, and we're seeing all these natural disasters, the end has to be in sight. And Jesus tells them something that had to be hard for them to hear and hard for them to swallow, and that is this. The end is not yet. He says, these are but the beginning birth pains. All right, folks, I think we know enough about human... uh, human birth to recognize is that you have contractions before the birth. Is that in in the natural uh, process of things that a woman will go through nine months of pregnancy. And then as the the birth is approaching, there will start to be contractions, but they don't all come at once. I remember uh, sitting up late at night when we we were expecting our first uh, with with, uh, Ezra. And the due date was close. And Des looked like she was ready to pop. She was uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable just watching how uncomfortable she was. And we were ready for that baby. And when those first contractions would come on one of those evenings, and you think, hey, let's get ready. I remember there was a false alarm one night. We thought, it's happening. Man, we can't wait. And the contractions, they came and they went. And this is the way that birth goes, is that there will be contractions. And there will be contractions. And, and then those contractions will speed up. In fact, they, they will tell you when, when they get this close or when you're having them this long, that means that it's about to happen. The birth is about to happen. And Jesus says this about all these things taking place. He said, hey, you think the end is coming? You think it's time for the baby to be delivered? I need to tell you, you're only at the contractions phase. That's where you're at. And so Jesus tells them, in a sense, a hard word. He's telling them what I just told you. Caution, trouble lies ahead. You think the end of the world is going to happen because of all these things. Let me tell you, you had a contraction. 
let's take a look at verses 9 to 13. So Jesus makes clear the end is not happening. The destruction of the temple is not going to issue the end or bring in the end of time. It's just the beginning. It's the first contraction. And so if you kind of look, Jesus said this is the first contraction. Forty years after Jesus says these things, temple is destroyed. His disciples are living through some very difficult times. Apparently, in addition to the temple being destroyed, natural disasters, false Christs, difficult times. And Jesus says, 40 years, you've had your first contraction. Okay? Now Jesus tells them, this is number four of what to expect. Jesus says in verses 9 to 13, expect persecution. I won't go into all of the details of these verses, but he begins verse 9 with, again, the watchword, be on your guard. And then he's going to tell them, you're going to face significant persecution. Significant persecution. You need to be on your guard. By the way, uh, just to maybe help you understand that word more, have you ever uh, watched a show, maybe some of you actually have been soldiers, maybe some of you have just watched shows about soldiers, but you know that when you're in a defensive position, that you have to have those who are on guard. So, some will sleep, some will be doing other things, some will be preparing the meal, but you have a watch, you have a guard, and what do you do when you're on guard? It's the opposite of sleeping. You stay awake and you watch. You are ready. You're prepared. The the word that they're using is that same word. The idea of is either you're on watch or you're asleep. And oftentimes you change, right? So you stay up and there's one group who are holding open their eyes. They are being prepared. They're making sure that everybody is ready. And the others have the freedom to sleep because you need rest. And what Jesus is saying is, don't fall asleep. You be on your guard. You be watching. This is a time for watching, not for sleeping. Be prepared. And the last thing Jesus wants them to be prepared for is persecution. It says they will be delivered to councils. They will be beaten in synagogues. They will stand before governors for my sake and bear witness. I won't go into the depths of this. This is all fulfilled in Acts. You look at the early church. They were brought before councils. They were brought before uh, the synagogues. They were brought before kings and leaders. This is what it meant to live in the early church. Specifically, it says they'll be handed over and betrayed. Uh, This word that they're using is the very same word that Jesus uses. Remember when Jesus prophesied three times to his disciples that I will be betrayed, I'll be handed over? Same word. Remember when Jesus said, here's what discipleship looks like, that you leave behind everything else and you follow me? Jesus is inviting them to begin to walk in his footsteps. He says, in the very same way that I've told you I'm going to be handed over, he already tells his disciples, you will be handed over. By the way, that word is always used of intentionality. It's not a mistake. Jesus is telling them, this is not a mistake. In the same way, I will be intentionally handed over by the providence of God, you will be handed over. Persecution from public. Persecution from officials. And notice this, persecution from loved ones. Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters turning one another into the authorities. People even losing their lives. This persecution is intense. It's from the public, right? So it's coming from those with governing powers. And it's coming from the private life, family. That's a wicked combination. Persecuted from without, persecuted from within. 
I want to tell you just three things about this persecution. Because rather than see this persecution as negative, Jesus actually tells them three things that are very specific about what God is doing. In verse 10, this persecution, rather than hindering God's plan for the gospel, the persecution will lead to those having the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to the very ends of the world, to proclaim the gospel to the nations. So the first thing that we see in the midst of this persecution that they need to know is coming is the gospel will be proclaimed. The second thing is that they will be given power. It says when you, when you stand before those kings, don't worry about what you're going to say. It says the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. So in the middle of the persecution, the gospel will be proclaimed. The Holy Spirit will be given to help you uh, proclaim the gospel with power. And lastly, look at verse 13. It says the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's the Holy Spirit who will help the church persevere to the end in the midst of persecution to proclaim the gospel, to uh, be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to courageously speak the truth in these public settings, and will give us the power to persevere. Because everything in you, I don't know, know, workouts are easy until you start to do them. In the middle, you want to quit. I, I, there was uh, several weeks ago, uh, there's, there's five guys that I kind of journey with and, and we, we have a little uh, cohort and I was in the middle of a workout and I remember being in the middle of the floor, I, everything hurt, my lungs hurt, I was doing some kind of silly new exercise and I thought, everything in me just says, stop, it's dumb. In fact, I was, I was literally yelling, nobody else is home, I'm glad. I was yelling at the video that I was watching, I was like, this is dumb, I just did triceps, you're killing me. It's a silly illustration, but I will tell you, when you start to feel the burn, when you start to feel the hurt, it happens. Go for a jog today. Tell me how long it takes before you move from jogging was a good idea to you feel the burn and you're like, this is a dumb idea. (laughs) You'll want to give up. The only thing that keeps you from giving up is the reality of where you want to get to. If you were after positive, or if you are after increasing your health, if you are wanting to increase your heart health, if you're wanting to say, I want to train for a marathon, there has to be a reason. And the reason that Jesus, first of all, he tells us there's going to be persecution. It's the reason that you would go through hard times. And he says, listen, the gospel will be proclaimed. You will be given the Holy Spirit and power, and you will persevere to the end with the Spirit's help. So let me just close and say, that's a heavy message, folks. We read a whole chapter in service today. We read some profound truths that I still haven't fully unpacked. Some hard things from Jesus. And I told you, so let's come full circle. I told you, why is this passage so difficult to interpret? And if it's so difficult to interpret, how do we even know its meaning? Well, as I promised, you will walk away with answers to those questions. So let's talk about the first. Why is this passage so difficult to interpret? It's really simple. Just like the disciples, our first question is when and what? As soon as they heard about the, the Jesus revealing to them that no stone would be left on one on top of another, our minds immediately look for the concrete. It's, it's, it's how our minds work to understand. Just think about this. How many of you struggle with the future? How many of you can get discouraged? Should be all of us, right? So I'm not talking to a specific group. 
When do we get discouraged? When we don't understand the journey in front of us and we don't have answers to specific things. And we have concrete things. We have visas that need to get done. I have a job that I'm looking for. I have bills that I don't know how to pay. I have a life crisis or a situation that I don't quite understand. When we look at the future and we don't have answers is when our faith gets weak, our knees get weak, and we want to either stop the journey, get out of the journey, or just drop out together, altogether. Because that's the way our minds work. The disciples wanted to know when and what. Here's the answer to, to why this passage is difficult. Because Jesus only reveals what we need to know, not what we want to know. All of this passage, the reason it's hard to interpret is because Jesus tells us what we need to know. He doesn't tell us all the things that we want to know. How many of you, when you were young, I wonder what the name of my spouse will be when I, I wonder how many kids I'll have. I wonder where I'll live. I wonder what job. I wonder when. And I don't know about you. There's been sometimes God has worked to divinely reveal things as far as uh, what might be around the corner. And, and steps of faith I needed to make. But by and large, the Christian journey is walking in faith with what God has already revealed, already made clear, and says, trust these things. You know who I am. You know how I work. You know what I said is coming. You walk in those things. And if you want to focus on the when and the what, you're going to be a miserable person because I'm only giving what you need to know. I'm not giving what you want to know. And that's a foundational truth I just want you to write down. God always reveals to us what we need to know, not what we want to know. So this passage, when we talk about why is it difficult, there is difficulties with interpretation. And we'll get to that as we continue to unpack. But one of the main reasons this is difficult is disciples asked when and what, and if you read all of those 37 verses... Jesus does not give a specific when and what. He gave one thing we knew, the destruction of the temple, but he wouldn't tell them when. It was 40 years later. He didn't tell them the specific signs. He told them that there's going to be a great tribulation, but they didn't know when that would happen. He told them there would be an abomination of desolation, but he didn't tell them what that actually was. And he told them that one day, count on it for sure, I will come back on the clouds in power and glory. I will come back for my people. The earth will pass away. The heavens will pass away. My words will not pass away. You can put it down. You can count on it. You can bet your life. Jesus' words would outlast that temple. Jesus' words will outlast these mountains. The earth will pass away. Jesus' words never will. That is a hardcore fact we can walk away with. Jesus told them what they needed to know His words will not pass away, not what they wanted to know. Here's the second part. If the interpretation is so difficult, how do we even know the meaning? Well, as I begin to outline for you, Jesus' first word to his disciples was, watch. His last word to his disciples was, watch. All throughout his entire teaching with them was laced this idea of stay awake, be on guard, and watch. And so why there's things that we don't know in this passage, I can actually tell you with absolute 100% certainty what was Jesus' purpose in talking to his disciples about end times. 100% certainty. And that's this. I can tell you in one sentence. Be on your guard and remain faithful to the end. That was Jesus' purpose 
and telling them troubles are ahead. Remember I started with troubles are ahead. Here's four things you need to be aware of. This is going to happen to you. And what was Jesus' message? What is the entire message from verse 5 to 37? Be on your guard. Remain faithful to the end. Here's Jesus' words of comfort. God has not determined, or God has determined not to save us from our trials, but to save the world and to save us through them. God has determined not to save us from our trials. That's the whole reason. He says these four things are going to happen. In fact, you can be, put it down, not only your generation, but those who will precede you. God has determined not to save you from your trials. But to save the world, remember the proclamation of the word, the Holy Spirit working through per- the persecution, and to save us through them. Jesus wants us to be ready for hard times. Hard times are on the path ahead. And let me just make a point. This is not in my notes, not in the sermon. There is a different gospel being preached all around the city and all around the world that is a gospel only of blessing. And God does bless, and God is faithful, and God is good. But how do you reconcile that with Mark 13? Because Jesus says, trials are ahead. Folks, if there is a gospel being preached that is only that God will always do, and God will always heal, and God will always bless, thinking that blessing is only good things happen to you, that is a gospel that doesn't match Jesus' own teaching in Mark 13. Jesus says, trials are ahead. And despite this, do not doubt, do not grow discouraged, stay on the path, the way of life is narrow. I'm telling you these things beforehand so you don't fall. You don't fall away. You're going to doubt, you're going to be discouraged, you want to drop out. But the life of faith is not an exemption from adversity, but a reliance on the promise of God to help us bear witness to the gospel in adversity and to be saved for eternal life through it. Last words. False Christs, wars, destruction of the natural world, persecution of those who love Jesus. Jesus tells us all this will come. But so will the preserving power of the Holy Spirit to help us faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus and to help us faithfully endure to the end. That is absolutely 100% clear in Mark 13. Let's pray. God, you are high and holy. As we approach passages like this, we are humbled. Because God, there is information that we want to know that would make us more comfortable that you choose not to reveal to us. And so we humbly come before you. And we ask that you give us the ability to proclaim, to persevere, so that you might receive glory and that we might know and enjoy what it means to be called by Jesus Christ and to be a disciple and to remain faithful to the end. God, help every heart in here know how to apply and understand these deep and troubling truths. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.